A Northwest Martin 202 is flying a short flight from Helena to Butte, Montana when disaster strikes. How did this flight end up in a mountain? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hello. It might sound a little different this time. We're, we're, we have a little AC unit we bought because it just gets too warm up here. Thank God, though. We also have the fan running, so I'm not sure how it's going to do with like the noise reduction stuff. It'll still work, but it's going to be, it might sound a little different than uh, it has in the past. I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah. Anyway, welcome back to the disaster that is us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to preface this with I'm sorry, patrons. I haven't done my Miranda episode for April yet because your girl is almost at the end of the school year and I'm dressed out. <laughs> okay, I got two concerts this week. So anyway, I'm stressed out and I've had no time to do my notes. And I'd sit down and start doing my notes and go, I can't focus on this I, right now. I get it. I had the opposite problem today where I accidentally worked an hour longer than I intended. See, it's not the issue with work. It's the matter, like, if I have to sit down and focus on it to do mm-hmm. it, and I'm like, wow, I really don't want to f- do this right now. I get that. You and want some ADHD meds? Oh, God. I, no. Not right now. I can't do it this week. It's going to have to wait till this weekend. I'll probably work on it during the I'll give you calls, one. But... I keep forgetting to take them, so I have plenty. Oh, sweet <laughs> Jesus. ADHD. Okay. ADHD. Anyway, sorry. I'm working on it. You'll get two in, in short succession of... Of each other. Because it's, it'll happen. My someday. life. Because I have a week and a half left, and I'm so close, and I'm just ready to not have to do anything You're anymore. Really stressed out, but also very excited to not have to do anything. Yes. See, I am at the opposite end of that spectrum from you, kind of, where I am very stressed out because it's just starting. Like, the worst of this is so just beginning. And today was a great example of that. Because I got put on a gate we have never used. And that was fun. Alpha 46, which belongs to Frontier. And it was horrible. Why so Nick are, Nick does not work for Frontier. Because there are four wide bodies on the ground at the same time, which take up all eight of the common use gates. Oh. The only extra one, the ninth one, technically, that is used by narrow bodies, there are four narrow body carriers competing for it at once. So I didn't get it <laughs> today. Solid. So. I got to use a gate we've never used before, and it actually went okay, except that that jet bridge is very scary. It keeps moving for a foot or two after you hit stop. Like, it, it has, like, this joystick control forward and back, yeah. and when you release it, it, like, drifts another foot or two, which is not great when you're trying to approach an airplane. Yeah. It's very old, it's very junky. It's horrible, and it smells like trash, too. I'm pretty sure it came from Stapleton. Mm. Oh... That means how old. Oh, you I will take pictures of it next time. How junky this thing is. How would they move it? Truck. <laughs> Same way they get new ones in, which they're actively doing. So, I thought they just built them on site. Nope. They haul them in on a truck and then hang them up with a crane. That's it. It's pretty okay. simple. All right. Anyway. Anyway. So do all the stuff. Do all the things. The newsletter. So, oh, we got to answer. We got to answer the new the newsletter trivia. Yes, we have to do that oh, this ho, ho, time. Ho. Also, to note, not that she's here tonight, but we have hired a new social media coordinator. Quote unquote hired. I mean, we have hired, but it's contract work. P- pay is negotiating, as in she doesn't want to get paid, and I'm not okay with that. But it's Caitlin, my also work intern. 
who's not my intern. Gen Z is not doing us. our understand social media. Is doing our social media. And she would be here tonight. She wanted to say hi, but she is strep. Yeah. So yeah, I would, please don't. Please I was don't. like, I, I can't afford to get sick right now. Okay. Me neither. I'm so close to the end of the year. I am so close to having to open Tuesday. And strep and... is literally the worst. Apparently she's had it long enough that once she's on antibiotics, which she is, she should be fine by tomorrow. Hmm. Okay. So do all the stuff. Check out the Patreon. Check out the merch page. Got it? Cool. Have I fixed Good. the duck thing? No. Nope. I have got to do that. Send me cross-stitch patterns. I'm going to need new small cross-stitch after this to distract me from the big cross-stitch. Or you could just work <laughs> on the big cross-stitch. I need breaks. This has been a nice break. Great. Anyway. Anywho. What are we covering today, Nick? Today! We are covering Northwest Airlines Flight 115. Thanks to... Heather. Thank you, Heather. Our patron, Heather? No, no. our friendo. Our friendo, Heather. Oh, that's right. Yes. Heather was on an episode a few weeks ago. Uh-huh. Yes. And, and she was talking about how she's from Butte, Montana. So guess where this crashed? <laughs> the, uh, but, but Montana? You yes. are correct. Well, not entirely. Nope, that's correct. Is okay. it technically within the... It was two and a half miles from the airport. Okay. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> this airplane crashed two <laughs> yeah. and a half miles from the airport Shocker. in Butte, Montana. All right. So, getting into this. This accident occurred on November 7th of 1950. Old as effing hill. Yeah, this is one of the oldest we've covered. Not the oldest. Oh, not the oldest. The oldest covered older. Northwest Flight 1 was yes. the oldest. Yes. <laughs> it turns out most of the old accidents we've covered were Northwest Airlines. They're yeah, quite a they series, were Northwest Airlines. Quite a series of old accidents that had to do with Northwest Airlines when they first started out. They changed a lot of things about aviation before they went under. <laughs> and not in a good way. They so. changed some things in a good way. I mean, they changed things... In aviation, but the how they did it, eh, not great. So anyway, this was a Martin 202. We haven't talked about a Martin in a long time. We have. It's just been a very long time. Yes. We haven't talked about a Martin in a while. This is a twin engine piston airplane. That's about it. It's small. It was like a small regional airliner for its period of time. It, much like the DC-3, was not very fast, and but very capable. I mean, it was capable of taking... Lots of people across the country in a short amount of time. The airplane's not very big, but they would, you know, for the period, they were easy to produce and quick to get around. Things have since changed a lot, and this airplane now would be very slow in comparison because it is a twin-engine piston airplane, unpressurized. This one had the tail number, November 93040. This was an early November number because we didn't do that before, like, the 1950s. The captain for this flight was Lloyd Lampman. Lampman. That's Lamp an man. unfortunate last name. Yep, Lloyd Lampman. He was 37 years old at the time. He had 8,291 hours total, of which 610 were on the Martin 202. Nice. The first officer was James Huff. He was 29 years old at the time. He had 2,873 hours total, of which 844 were on the Martin 202. More hours on the Martin 202 by about 240, but far fewer hours total. About... A quarter. This was a flight from Chicago to Seattle via many stops. Many stops. Yeah. As, as was <laughs> as, uh, uh, the norm. Yes. This report was a little bit infuriating because it left a lot of things out. Now, I understand that some of it isn't pertinent, but some of it was. Not all of the stops were pertinent, but I don't know where all this airplane stopped. 
I only know what they mentioned in the report, and so does the internet. Oh. Because I cannot find any data past Butte, but I'm sure they stopped at least three more times between there and Seattle, considering how often they stopped on the way to Butte, which is about halfway between, well, it's a little more than halfway between Chicago and Seattle. They stopped in Minneapolis, St. Paul. They stopped in Billings. They stopped in Great Falls. They stopped in Helena. They stopped in Butte. And again, probably more. I have no idea. They didn't say. All it said was, via many stops. Thank you. Great. The flight departed Chicago late on the evening of the 6th of November. The flight left Minneapolis at 1.30 a.m. local time. Early! On the morning of the 7th. Freaking gross. Yep. Early on the morning of the 7th. The flights preceding that went uneventfully to Billings. At the time, a crew swap occurred in to the accident crew in Billings. So they did a crew swap in Billings to the accident crew. That makes sense why my part says that they flew the Billings to Seattle leg. Yes. Because they did. I'm guessing Billings must have been their halfway point, essentially. The following two flights, to Great Falls and then to Helena, were uneventful, both of which are in Montana. All of this is all in Montana. It's a big state. Look it up. Yeah, if you've never seen what Montana looks like. I haven't either. It's, I mean, the state itself, like the outline of the state, it's very big. It's sizable. It's very sizable. All these hops between, like, Billings, Great Falls, and Helena, and Butte, probably not terribly long legs for them at all. But some of the earlier legs were, although I don't know if there was maybe stops in there that they didn't mention, because they just skipped over South Dakota and North Dakota entirely. I have no idea. So... The aircraft was fueled at Helena before departing at 7.53 a.m. local time from runway 29 on an IFR, or Instrument Flight Rules, flight plan. The flight to Butte had 17 passengers and four crew. So this is the flight from Helena to Butte. This is the accident flight. Before takeoff, the flight asked the Helena Tower to request if the homestake fan marker was operating, and the ATC replied that it was. This is a marker over in Butte. Fan marker is an outdated term because Very. the the range of a marker, if you look at it from a side profile, looks like a hand fan. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I spent a lot of time on the internet today trying to figure out what the <laughs> hell a fan marker is. Outdated, that's what it is. Oh my god, you have no idea. We're, I uh, have a rant later. This This is the age of ADF. This is the age of DME. Okay, so I'm putting my preface now. I get really frustrated about navigation. We take modern navigation so for granted. Oh my god. I'm not even going to give the full rant out. I'm saving it for later. But whoever figured out navigation back then, first of all, good for you. Second of all, try again. (laughs) It's not their fault. They didn't have as much stuff as we do now. But they made it too There's, complicated. There, there had to be a better. There had to be a better way. I feel like they were like. But for I them, it wasn't a better way. They were like, I designed something that worked, and they were like, Great, you're the first one that said you did, so we adopted that. I and hate somebody it. else was probably like, But wait, <laughs> I have a better idea. <laughs> we should have listened to them. Even VORs were almost a better idea. They're not. Well, but now kind of. they're completely. Oh my outdated. god, they're horrible. Now we just have waypoints because GPS is just such a miracle. Just don't don't fly in Antarctica, okay? Just Right. Anyways, the cruising altitude for this flight was to be 10,500 feet. The flight was to fly on the Amber Airway number 2, 
to the Whitehall Range Station, then fly on the Red Airway Number 2 to the Butte Airport. We will, I'm sure, cover all that later in a maddening way. <sighs> As you can hear the heavy sighs from yes. Christie's side of the room. Yes. Anyways, after takeoff, the flight made a climbing right turn to pass the Helena Radio Range Station to then head south toward the Whitehall Range Station. In a quick summary, a range station is a radio station. It's part of their navigation and their routing. It's not dissimilar to a waypoint today, but in a very, 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 very analog fashion. A lot of them have become VORs. Yep. These used to be manned. That's the weird thing. Or womaned. Sure. 8.01 a.m., the flight reported to Helena that it had reached cruising altitude, which was acknowledged by the air traffic controller. The flight began descending for Butte at 8.11 a.m. They had been at cruising altitude for a whole whopping 10 minutes. Woo! Woo! 8.14 a.m., the flight reported to the Butte air traffic controller being over the Whitehall Range Station. Talk about that later on. The Butte ATC acknowledged the message from the flight, then gave them an altimeter of 29.97, and the wind report, which was out of the south, but calm. Plus, they provided sealing information for the areas around the airport. The flight replied that they had vertical visibility at 10,500 feet, so they could see the ground. Basically, that's what they were saying. Mm. This was questionable. Well, we'll talk about that later on. I don't, actually, a whole lot, oddly. We'll talk about that later on. This was the last time that the flight would be heard from. Oh, well. It happened fast. Nothing happened fast. There's not a lot to go on, because this is 1950, and I'm sure you can guess what that means. The airplane never made it to Butte. And a short while after being overdue with no air traffic controller contact, the tower at Butte initiated emergency response and search and rescue set out at 9 a.m. local time. Crash site was found later that day. Around 8, it was assumed that around 8.15 a.m., so very shortly after their last transmission, the aircraft struck the eastern slope of a ridge just 30 feet below the crest of said ridge at an altitude of 8,250 feet on a heading of 290 degrees magnetic. They also gave the true heading, which I was like, why? We don't... Because it was like a 19-degree deviation. Yeah, it is. Well, and we don't ever talk about true heading and aviation. It's not... Well, I guess we shouldn't... I shouldn't say that. We do. But magnetic heading matters more. (laughs) That is all. This was just two and a half miles east of the control tower at Butte, Montana. So they were close to the airport. The aircraft was completely destroyed and scattered along the snow-covered slope on the mountainside. The left wing had struck first, followed by the nose. The left engine nacelle was thrown 140 feet opposite side of the mountain. Oh. It had flown up and over the ridge, 140 feet down the other side. Some of the wreckage was burned by a post-crash fire, but the airplane was completely disintegrated and destroyed. There was no indications of a pre-crash fire. No. All sections of the aircraft were found at the crash site, indicating that it had not broken up before impact. All 21 on board perished in the accident, because it hit hard. So, it happened pretty suddenly, from the pilots that said they could see the ground. Uh Uh-huh. That's all I got. All right, this investigation was performed by the... CAB! The Civil Aeronautics Board, the predecessor to today's NTSB. Because 1950. Yep. Given that the crash occurred just 30 feet below the crest of the ridge, the first suspicion was some kind of turbulence or downdraft. 
As we have discussed, wind and weather patterns on the leeward side of the mountains and other such landscapes are more turbulent than normal as wind comes over the ridges. Any kind of significant change in speed or direction of the wind could have led to a loss of lift, and it would then make a little more sense how the crash happened. That being said, weather observations prove that the wind on the west side of the ridge was around 15 knots, and the wind on the east side was about 18 knots. So not a very significant change. No, not at all. Any kind of buildup of wind speed over a mountain ridge usually lasts for several miles leeward of the mountains. <clears throat> Denver. Yep. And one witness a mile and a half east testified that there was not any noticeable wind. Investigators did further analysis of the topography of the ridges and all factors led to the conclusion that at a clearance of a thousand feet or more over the ridge, downdrafts and turbulence would have been light, maybe at most briefly moderate. So the thought of wind shear, though they did not have the word for that at the time, leading to the loss of lift was discarded. Fair enough. Also fair enough. Isn't that remarkable that wind shear just wasn't really a thing yet? Yeah. Well, they didn't have the word for it yet. I know, but we were like hurling metal into the sky and going, I have no idea what the wind's going to do to this. Not a clue. We're just going to hope it's fine. And then it wasn't. Turns out. And we were like, why? And then we came up with a whole new thing for that. Airplanes made wind shear. Refer to episodes something. Hold on. There's a series about that. Airplanes, like, literally changed the way we do meteorology. Refer to episodes 38 through 41. There you go. Look at me looking up. Anyway. Cool. Then there came the question, which I wrote in my notes briefly. Turns out it was not brief. I should go back through my notes when I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> eh, who, who cares? There came the question of the familiarity with the route, or route, depending on where you are in the United States. Or the world. Or the world. But that was also not so quickly discarded, as Captain Lampman was very familiar with the instrument approach procedure into Butte, as well as with the high ridges within Red Airway Number 2, where the crash occurred. He had flown the Seattle Billings route for several years, doing so 18 times within the last 30 days leading up to the accident. So he couldn't have misflown it, right? Wrong. Wrong. And here's where I preface that any episode I cover regarding antiquated navigation techniques leads to a very frustrated and aggravated Christy that spends 20 minutes at her desk banging her head on the keyboard trying to understand how to fly using radio signals, having never flown a plane in her life. But I got there. Eventually. It's fun. It makes frequencies and the airplane goes, hey, that way. (laughs) If you use them. Yep, that's correct. Does that mean he didn't use them? So it's kind of hard to say because, you know, we don't have um, black boxes to work with. Because they didn't exist yet. Right. <laughs> so we're going to make a couple of assumptions that um, the way that this was misflown, I'm going to assume he didn't use them because uh, how did you f- up this bag? That is quite the fair assumption. So please draw a map in your mind or on paper so you can keep up with this because I struggled. Or you can look at the map that I found at the bottom of the report after I wrote my notes. Also fair enough. Anyway, so this is an approach to Butte from the east. I'm starting my story north of Whitehall, Montana, a town to the east of Butte. Between Butte and Whitehall is the mountain range that the accident occurred in. Whitehall had a manned radio station, or at least that's what I think it was, Nick confirmed, and I think it's now a VOR. The intended route to be flown was south to Whitehall, then turn west over the Whitehall station and follow the 275-degree radial west-northwest to the Homestake fan marker, which has a light signal indicating where the Homestake pass is in the mountain range, allowing safe passage through to Butte. This is just as confusing as it sounds. Guess what didn't happen? Any of that. That? Witness one by the name of Ruffler? Ruffler? I don't know. Was he the farmer who was milking? Can I get there, please? (laughs) 
I love this because this was also, yeah, I, I read all that. Anyway. Witness one by the name of Rofler lives two and a half miles north, or lived, sorry, I don't know, I'm assuming he's dead, lived two and a half miles north and a little bit west of the Whitehall range station, and he had returned from milking his cows and entered his house at about 8.05 to 8.10. I love the fact that they just had to put that in there. They, could, they didn't have to specify what he was doing. There were so many other things they left out of this report that would have been great to know. But he was milking his cows, so it's very important. But they had to put in there that he was on his way back from milking his cows. I didn't care. He could have just told me he was walking his farm, and I wouldn't have asked any more questions. And they also made note that it was not after 8.20, because that's when he checks the clock to make sure that his daughters are ready to take the bus to school. I see. Sure. Uh-huh. Okay. Anyway. 19.50. He saw the aircraft one half mile to the north of his house, heading in a northwesterly direction into the storm. Now, using just verbal communication, it is hard to relay why that is a problem, but add to the map you have in your head or on paper. Why is it a problem that this witness, who lives two and a half miles north of the Whitehall range station, saw the plane already flying northwest? For one. Two, did you catch the storm part? Yeah, flying into a storm. Remember how they said they had vertical visibility? Yeah. Witnesses on the ground watched them just seconds before they hit the mountain fly into a snowstorm, into the clouds. Hmm. Okay, so there's that. But also, in your head, so they're supposed to get, they're flying south to the Whitehall Range Station, mm-hmm. and there they're supposed to fly west to Butte. Mm-hmm. He lives two and a half miles north of the airport, and they're already flying northwest. Maybe yep. they wanted to take a shortcut. Wasn't a shortcut. When has that ever worked? I didn't say it would work. Clearly it didn't. Let me put it this way. They weren't flying at the airport. So it meant that the flight had turned west about three miles before it was supposed to and was then flying parallel to the west leg of the Whitehall Range and quote unquote appreciably to the north of where you would see the light signal of the Homestake fan marker. It was undetermined if the flight would have received the oral indication of the fan marker that is emitted in addition to the light or visual signal. The investigators concluded that the final few miles of the flight were flown under alternating instrument and visual flight conditions and significantly north of the west leg of the Whitehall Range and Homestake fan marker and that they struck the ridge during a snowstorm. Yes. Yep, they didn't say anything. They wrote that, quote, The captain demonstrated a complete lack of flight discipline by deviating from the prescribed instrument approach procedure to Butte. It is obvious that had he followed such prescribed procedures, the accident would not have occurred. However, the company is responsible for the establishment and execution of a comprehensive pilot training program, as required by the Civil Air Regulations, and designed to require the highest degree of efficiency in scheduled carrier operations. Certainly, this program was not as effective as required. End quote. No, really. I feel like, though, I don't know, because we don't fly like this anymore. No, we don't. How completely accurate is flying like this, really? So, basically, I'm, again, I have to assume he wasn't using his instruments, because if he had been, he would have been, been flying on the 275 radial towards Butte. He also would have waited till he crossed the Whitehall Station, but they were flying on a 290 magnetic heading when they crashed, yep. and they were three miles north of the station when they turned. This airplane did not have a navigator, or for that matter, a flight engineer. This was a rare two-pilot full-size airliner. The only thing I can think is that he wasn't using his instruments. Otherwise, he would have turned in the designated location. Right. It seems like he kind of used an assumption, which is always a bad thing. (laughs) But again... Because he assumed he knew from experience, and then he was wrong. That's all I got. Flying into a storm, just a bad idea. You're on an, an instrument flight plan. Why did you make that decision 
without using your instruments. I, I'm also confused as to why they just were like gun ho because they fly lower back then than they do now. Yeah, it's right? unpressurized. It was unpressurized. So they clearly could have saw the storm. Hey. So I'm I'm yeah. kind of like concerned that they just decided to gung ho into this huge snowstorm. Well like, and he said he was at an altitude of ten thousand five hundred feet. Right. He was not. <laughs> if he was, he would have cleared the ridge. They crashed at eight thousand two hundred fifty feet. Right. He had already started descending well before that. And huh. I'm assuming the pass would have been low enough if he had, I don't know, flown into the pass. Yeah. Yes. Correct. But he didn't. And so. it, it, it's also worth noting on the charts, though I could not read much of the charts because they're um, old, but the emergency altitude was 15,000 feet. Right. Fantastic. I, you know, I think now this pass is where I-90 goes through. Let me look. Because that is where the Homestake Trailhead is. Homestake Pass in Butte, Montana. Is where I-90 passes through. Oh, okay. Well, right. there you go. That's the answer to that. When this... was I-90 made? Good question. The interstate system, I feel like, wasn't made until the 60s. So, the vast majority of it anyways. So, just to that is, red dot, airport, I-90. I-90 was constructed in 1956. Okay. So, six years later. Mountain range. Mountain range. That would have been the pass. Yeah. They were up here. Yeah. <laughs> Not in the pass. Not in the pass. No, Not in the mountains. Close to the pass. Slamming into the mountains. That's what they were doing. So that I don't. Uh, that's what we got. We don't have much else because um. No black boxes. Okay. Bad decision making. What I don't understand, and we'll get into this a little bit later, is they completely blamed it on the captain. Uh, we have no indication who was the pilot flying, who was the pilot monitoring. Because CRM didn't exist yet, so it didn't matter. It could have been a hundred percent the first officer. Just putting right. that out there. Right. Also, yes. They but. just assumed it was the captain because normally the captain's the one who flew. Right. And the captain still should have been piloting command. Should have been the one that was in charge of the, how the airplane was operating, no the matter crew, what. My point is the crew as a whole should have been blamed. Yes. Since we're lacking evidence of it being one or the other. Agreed. Yeah. But, but you know, CRM doesn't exist yet. CRM, CRM, CRM. Part of the reason why they probably assumed that it was the captain is because he was the one that got the flight plan and met with the dispatcher. Doesn't mean it was the pilot flying. No, but he knew what should have happened, and he didn't stick to it. Okay, all right, well, well, we'll take a break, and we'll come back with all the normal. Yep. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So some things transpired during the break. We've all retrieved... Cut water beverages. Yes, because by the way, not 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 an ad, but cut waters like mixed drinks, delicious, pretty good. Also, next week's episode will have a Miranda rage warning. Something to look forward to. Also, Campari is disgusting. <sighs> any of you who like Negronis or any other cocktail with Campari, you're wrong. Yep. Anyway, okay. Okay. So the normal. Kind of. Sort I mean, of. It is. It is. Just. Probably not as fleshed out as normal. Ah! There's actually more than normal. Kind of. There are safety actions. But there's not recommendations. Oh. Oh. <laughs> because they had. You see why I say it's like, yeah, they had 
the safety actions. They have the things they already did. But we'll do the findings first, which were actually written after. That's weird. Yep. So Nothing I- makes sense. <laughs> I love CAB reports. They're so short and to the point. But they don't describe things well. No, they do not. I sat on a team's call with Caitlin, screaming, trying to understand what route they took. Because they did not define the Whitehall Range Station. They did not define Homestake Fan Marker. So I'm sitting there reading Wikipedia, trying to figure out what the actual is happening. She's like, okay, well, if they're approaching from the east, I'm like, yes, okay, they're approaching from the east. And like, we worked our way backward, reading the same three paragraphs over and over again. And then I told her like 40 minutes later that there was a map. (laughs) Sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but that's just like the epitome of like, God damn it. Why would you put that in the report? And they didn't make it the first appendix either. Because it's the CAB. And if they made it easy, everyone would do this. So right. there's, there's my aggravation. I'm, I am equally aggravated as the New York collision, but not as aggravated as the Mount Erebus crash. I don't think anything will ever make me as frustrated as that episode. Yeah, the Mount Erebus crash is really confusing. At least backward. At least I figured this one out. I have yeah, yeah. never figured out the Mount Erebus crash. Right. And I don't care to try again. Right. But back to my point of like... Sorry. It's okay. Back to my point of like, they're concise and to the point. There are six findings and I can put them all on my little screen. So I'm just going to read these verbatim because... Yay! Otherwise, I don't have much to fill time with here. They found that the company, the aircraft, and the crew were properly certified. Congrats. Sure. You got something right. They found that there was no structural failures or power interruptions prior to the accident. As far as they could know. Right. I mean, from witness statements, it didn't look like the aircraft fell apart. No. And the, well, and everything was found together. Right. The and propellers the propellers were still in pitch for flight, so. And the maintenance records were not shoddy. Mm-mm. These airplanes were still pretty new at the time. That means very little to me, Nick. I know. Very little. <laughs> <laughs> Brand new planes crash. Yeah. All the time. But they shouldn't have... Covered when the 37 crashed when it right. was brand new. But they shouldn't have shoddy maintenance records because they're new. Allegedly. 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 And then there's the max. Meh. It wasn't really shoddy maintenance records. No, it, was it was just, just shoddy just, maintenance practice. <laughs> which they found in the maintenance records. Right. The maintenance records were kept. <laughs> that wasn't the problem. You're the problem. I found that both the Whitehall Radio Range... Station and the Homestake fan marker were functioning properly at the time of the accident. They just didn't use them. Or they assumed they didn't use them. <laughs> well, that's what they We have to they assume they didn't use them. Otherwise, you know, this wouldn't have happened. Right. That's pretty much what they say here. They found that the pilot failed to follow the carrier's prescribed number two instrument approach procedure to the Butte Airport, which procedure is approved by the Civil Aeronautics Administration. The oh, predecessor okay. to the FAA. Yep. They found that the aircraft struck a mountain at about the... 8,250 foot level, while on a heading of approximately 290 degrees magnetic. Cool. And the last one, because <laughs> we're there already. Yep. We found that the accident occurred during a local snowstorm and under conditions of variable ceiling and visibility. I, okay, knowing what they get up north, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. I can only imagine. Yep. Like, we get pretty bad snowstorms here, sure. but nothing as bad as some of the stuff in Montana. Yeah, well, I mean, well, granted, it depends on this, where. This was yes. in November. November yeah. is not the snowiest by any stretch of the imagination. No, but Montana was already in snow, and they were over the mountains. So, shocker, there was snow. It wasn't whiteout conditions. It was, oh, you can kind of see crash. Well, and they could 
see for the most part, but then they flew into a cloud just seconds before they hit the mountain. So it was like... Could they see the mountain? Probably not. Period. Probably not. Because there was a giant cloud in front of it. Right. It was too late by the time they hit it, I'm sure. Okay, so... Oh, that's the findings. The probable cause. The board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the failure of the captain to conduct the flight in accordance with the prescribed approach procedure. No matter what, they pin it on him because he was the pilot in command of the flight, so no matter who was flying, he's responsible for whether or not they follow the procedure. Which, in that day and age, makes sense. In this day and age, I wholeheartedly disagree. Sure. Well, because we have crew resource management now, right. and well, it's everyone's concern. But even right. then, like, there are two people in that cockpit, mm-hmm. CRM or not. I think the reason they assumed that most of this fell on the captain, too, is because he was very familiar with the Butte Airport, and he had done this route plenty of times, and he had flown into Butte a lot. So he should have been familiar with the area, and they were assuming that he pretty much took that upon himself to do whatever he pleased. But they also didn't say that the first officer was or wasn't familiar with the route. Right, but they distinctly said that the captain was. Well, they're making some pretty, I think, I think, my own personal opinion. Sure. They're making some pretty big assumptions. Yes, they are, of course. Like, we, we have talked about already before the break, like... The captain was most likely flying, but that doesn't mean he was flying. Right. He was the one that was the most, like... Senior. Senior, but, like, he has done flights to Butte before. That doesn't mean the first officer hasn't, and it doesn't mean the first officer wasn't practicing. Right. And if that was the case, and the captain was just trying to make sure radio and stuff... Whatever you do back then to, you know, make sure you're going the right way. There's definitely room for ambiguity. Yeah. So I, it's not that I disagree with the root of the probable cause. It was definitely pilot error. Yes. But I think in this day and age, if it were to happen today, the probable cause would be the crew, not the captain. Sure. The crew. Yep. They make a lot of assumptions because they didn't have enough information because they didn't have black boxes. Well, and... What I'm saying is even without black boxes. Yes, of course. If this exact same thing happened today, they wouldn't blame just the captain. No, they would probably put it on the crew. Of course. Yes. And I think that is what is correct. Sure. Absolutely. But that's not what they determined. I know. (laughs) So no matter what, that's the factual information. Exactly. So, safety actions. The things that changed. The things they did. The things that they did. The things that happened after the accident. Which is good to know that, like, things happened, and right. they weren't just recommendations that get ignored by the FAA. Right. <clears throat> so, reading this verbatim again from the report. As a result of this and subsequent accidents involving Northwest Airlines, because yes, that's a thing, the Civil Aeronautics Administration took the following actions. One, required higher ceiling and visibility minimums for Northwest Airlines operations on both domestic and international routes. Effective January 26th of 1951. Now, that being said... Yep. A lot of this got solved with technology. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Of course. Once you have pressurized vessels, you can fly a lot higher. And then you don't have to worry about these kinds of things. You won't, you won't hit a mountain. mountain. Well, right. unless you're on descent and not paying attention to MDA, and then you'd hit a mountain. Right. But they were basically upping their IFR requirements to almost VFR requirements. <laughs> because they were like, you are having so many problems trying to figure out how to get your pilots trained on instrument stuff. You can't operate an instrument. Which... Positions. Training on instrument, understandably, is really difficult. Yes, it is. And they didn't have simulators back in the day. And if they did, they were really haphazard and yeah, they weren't thrown together. They weren't anything like what we have today, of course. Oh, real quick, this sparks a thought in my in my burn. Your burn. That a patron of ours, Tracy. Uh huh. Hi, Tracy. Hello, Tracy. 
she is on episode 74. So she's still cool. quite a bit behind us right now. That's okay. But You're she says, it. although highly recommended, you do not technically need an instrument rating to obtain your commercial license. Correct. You do not. Which we've discussed. Yeah. And I, I don't know if we corrected it at that point. I don't remember. I don't know. Um, Usually people go through the instrument rating before getting their commercial, though, because it's pretty pointless to have a commercial rating without an instrument. Instrument rating, yeah. Because then you just can't do many things. You're so restricted. Yeah. But it, yes, it's true. But it if, can happen. Yeah. Absolutely. If, if you are a VFR commercial pilot, you have distance and daylight restrictions, which kind of makes the rating a little useless. Exactly. <laughs> but I could see like crop dusters and such being commercially rated yes. VFR pilots. Which is pretty much the only case that that exists. But yes. I feel like that that plays into this, right? Like you should understand your instruments and how they work. And like, Very much so. Especially when you're going into conditions like... Butte, Montana. In yep. winter, like, that you need to be able to use your instruments to get yourself to the airport because you're not going to always be able to see. Right. Well, late fall, if you're being... Okay, listen here. If you live anywhere where it snows... Where the wind with... hurts your face. You know, yes. winter starts in about October and it doesn't end till about May. Okay? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes June. Depending where you live. Continuing on. Required the establishment of a concentrated pilot training program for all pilots. Effective February 1st of 1951. They made congratulations. Them. This was the precursor to all of modern aviation. Yeah, congratulations. You made yourself require an actual training program for your pilots. That just, I mean, to me is like, yeah, okay. Duh. Duh. Okay, we yeah. say duh, but they probably didn't say duh. I know, I know. Required a comprehensive inspection of all company aircraft, effective February 1st, 1951. Again, we, we really... say duh, but yes. that's not a duh. That's There's huge. Inspection intervals are such a common and very, very focused thing these days when it comes to aircraft. Inspections are heavily the, scrutinized. All of these safety actions are pretty much the precursor to the FAA. Yeah, pretty much. No, that's kind of the point. Restricted operations to 225 miles for four-engine aircraft and 150 for two-engine aircraft, unless an airport having the higher weather minimums was available within such distances. Uh, uh, um, <coughs> we, we fly so much further now. <laughs> and you don't have to fill up as often. Right. It's kind of like uh, old cars compared mm -hmm. then to now. Yes. Aviation got efficient. Yeah. Basically. That's pretty much it. Because we stopped using 26 piston they, engines. Yeah, they got hybrids. <laughs> that do nothing but suck down eight gallons a second. Okay, it wasn't that bad. Uh, it was probably in the better part of like a gallon a second. I don't know. It was pretty bad. But that's why Gander existed. And now it, it's sad. Yes. Listen to Come From Away. Highly recommend. Yep. Restricted flight schedules to allow sufficient time to accomplish necessary maintenance. Again, yeah, the, the they, no duh thing. All this really does. Uh, but again, we say no duh, and for, to them it wasn't a no duh. Yeah, because right. it was pretty new. But also, it still begs the question, because they didn't talk about it at all, because this is a CAB report, and they don't talk about many things that are, I don't know, important. And they didn't bring up why. Why? What did they find that they felt required that? Not to say it's not important, because absolutely it is, but maybe they found something with the aircraft that they were like, that's questionable. It was certified and it was operable, but questionable. So they decided to make sure that they upped their maintenance practice. Oh, up your they maintenance up, they practice. They upped their game. Yes. That's it. Okay. Well, that's the whole thing. Which is really brief, but a lot of those safety actions Pretty big, are actually. huge precedents. Yes. Yeah. 
for sure. They did take a lot of Target directly at Northwest Airlines because Northwest had a lot of problems at the time. But you got to have problems. To fix them, yes. Unfortunately, in aviation, that's the truth. And the thing is, you know, we hear about, oh, it's really unfortunate. They should just think about these things ahead of time. But a lot of the times, we don't know. We don't know until we know. (laughs) We don't know until we find out, basically. And usually the finding out involves people dying. Because guess what? We f***ed around and we found out. (laughs) Yeah. That's usually how aviation goes. But aviation also, for the most part, is really good at, oh, people died. We should fix that. Oh, look, we fixed that. Yes. People don't die anymore. Not much. Not very often. (laughs) In most of the world, commercial aviation, unbelievably safe. Even when something goes wrong, the procedures and the policies and everything that we put in place. It doesn't go as wrong. Right. The restrictions that we put in place, the media still makes it out to be really scary. But guess what? Nobody died. Nobody died. And people don't really get hurt either. Like, nope. It just doesn't happen. We just end up with these really dramatic videos of like airplanes on fire and people taking their luggage off with them down the slide. Oh my God. <laughs> I hate those videos. And they happen a lot. And they have the <laughs> audacity to be like, I'm so inconvenienced. You could have hurt somebody, you idiot. Yeah. God. I didn't know we would have a like spontaneous Miranda, Miranda rage. rage. You know sorry. what? Keep your damn <laughs> stuff on the airplane. I did it. I'm okay, sorry. I... I did it knowing full well. <laughs> I am putting this out there into the universe that if anything ever happens, I won't take all my luggage, but you can bet your that I am taking my cross stitch. That's in a bag that you could put on your shoulder. Don't take your freaking rollerboard. Don't take your rollerboard. Someone taking a backpack? Okay. Someone taking their entire suitcase? Bit much. Quite frankly, I'm taking my phone and I'm bailing out. There is nothing in my bag that's that important. I don't usually carry anything that's that important. We haven't talked about this before, and it is not at all relevant to this episode, but that being said, if you are traveling, put your prescription medications in your personal item. Yes. Yeah, do not put it in your check bag. Or your carry-on bag. Right. In the event of emergency, you want that on your person. We should do a whole episode about traveler etiquette. I can say so many things working Be at an airport. Be ready when you get to security at the airport. <sighs> Assume that your bag is too big to check because they don't make them standardized. It's too big to go like in the overhead bins. That's going to have to be gate checked. Yeah. That's my point, I guess. And because I, they do not make them standardized. And no, it is not a carry-on size. The thing you bought that said carry-on is, is not. not. It is not. It does not fit. Okay, we should pause on this and actually make a traveler etiquette episode, and we should probably do it with uh, Caitlin, who is Gen Z, and we have to teach her things. Yes. yes. So she can ask us <laughs> lots of great questions, because she hasn't traveled. She's traveled quite a bit, but she hasn't traveled a lot with the us. The main thing we have taught this child, yes. I say child in a very loving and affectionate way, mm-hmm. do not wear a crop top. No. When you're traveling. Unless you'd like a rug burn all over your back. Right. And it's just good etiquette for one and two. If you're traveling standby, you that will get you booted. Yeah. And I mean, I don't, I respect everybody at the airport, but quite frankly, if you show up looking raggedy, a little raggedy or anything of that sorts, I'm not judging you, but a little bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm judging you. Yeah. So. That's fair. Okay. Trivia. Yes. The trivia questions. I think this is the most we've gotten answers to. And the most correct answers we've gotten. Yes. Now they were pretty easy. They were very easy. Yeah. The first one is, what are Paige's pronouns? I have Bob's answers pulled up. Okay. He goes, they, them. Go pronouns. Go pronouns. Correct. Which is correct. It's they, them. It is. 
I sometimes screw that up because Paige kept their name. And so sometimes I call them by the wrong pronouns. And then I profusely apologize and call them by the right pronouns. And that's all you have to do is when you notice that you say it incorrectly. Correct yourself. Don't make a big deal about it. Just say, oh, these are the correct pronouns. Correct it. Move on. Yep. Name one of the things that Nick collects. Bob said. Here's what Bob said. Apart from the exasperated size and looks from Christy, <laughs> um, fidget spinners, maps, pictures of maps, more maps, spare ducks, color-coded XLR cables, and maps. <laughs> these all are of all these things, are correct. All of these things are things I've talked about. I don't actively collect any of these things other than maps in my brain. You I actively collect say, exasperated size for me and don't you say otherwise. Sure, but I do not hoard them. They happen. The answer I actually think I was looking for was uh, planes. Yep. Planes. Cameras would have also been correct. Yes, cameras is also correct. Kaylin's answer, though, I think was the most accurate, and that was gay friends. Weirdly, yes. Weirdly, yes. (laughs) Weirdly, yes. (laughs) I am not, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) That just happens. And I'm okay with that. I think there's like two people at our crafting days that are not queer. Me. Me. (laughs) (laughs) My mom. I think your mom's a little queer. No. No, I don't think so. Okay. I thought Caitlin was a little queer, and then we talked about it. Yep, she's queer. Fair enough. All right, what is Miranda's profession? Bob said brat wrangler, a.k.a. teacher. Correct. Yes. yes. Miranda and is a uh, middle school band teacher. He Look. says, I work at university, and trust me, they don't get magically <laughs> get any less bratty when they turn 18. <laughs> That's the truth. They don't get any less bratty when they turn 58. <laughs> It's true. I know from working in an airport. I watch small children and try to teach them music. Yes. Without murdering them. Emphasis on try. Without murdering them. I really think people's brains fall out of their head when they go to the airport. I really think they do. The more I encounter people at the airport, I'm like, wow, how did you get out of middle school? (laughs) They didn't. No, they didn't. We should teach an airport etiquette class to middle and high schoolers. Yes. Passenger etiquette. Oh, I would love to breed a new generation of people that are respectful at the airport. Oh, good luck. They're not respectful. And that know how life. to travel. Because it's not actually that complicated. We have figured out how to mass produce this, and yet people still overcomplicate it. Yep. What mental health disorder do Nick Christie share that I also semi-share? Yes. It's ADHD. ADHD. And Bob said, it's nice to share. <laughs> Sharing is caring. Some of you answered anxiety. Nope, that's just me. I used to have that, but not really anymore. Miranda has it a little bit. More than a little bit. It's better now. Yes. Therapy. Therapy. This is our pitch for go to therapy. If you think you don't need therapy, you need therapy more. Right. I've had anxiety a few times in my life, and the one time like it got really bad, went to therapy. And I'm very receptive to therapy. I can't say it's the same for everybody. Everybody is different. But me being very receptive to therapy, poof, gone. Yeah. All better. But most of the people that answered the trivia questions got at least most, if not all of those, correct. Yep. Which I'm like, yay. Anyway. Anywho. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it. Thanks to Heather for recommending this episode. Yeah, thanks. We really appreciate Heather. Yes. We really thank appreciate you. everybody. <laughs> everybody. Thank you. <laughs> everybody. Sorry. Okay. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's stuck in my head lately. Sorry. Damn it. All right. 
as always, you should check out the Patreon because there's cool stuff on Patreon that you can get like hundreds and hundreds of hours of content. Yep. And While looper reels and discounts on merch and all so much stuff. You can see Paige's comments on stuff. Yes, because Paige is also a patron. Yes, and Paige comments on everything. Yes, they do. <laughs> they do, and they're wonderful. Their username is Rampage. Yes, just if so you're wondering. Know. Yes. That is, um, speaking that of is Paige, Paige, I don't know if Paige has edited the most recent episode already, but um, we still need your pajama size while yes. I'm thinking yes. about it. We when still, you hear this, send us a your, message. We need your pajamas size. Because I was or- dead about to order our pajamas, and I was like, wait a second, I need Paige's pajama size. And then I was going to text them, and then I ADHD'd. So you should also get Caitlyn pajamas, because... No, that's that's she why is also I also on staff. That's that's why I almost did. Is Caitlin's like, so when are we ordering PJs? And I literally logged on to Printify and was like, I need Paige's size first. Yeah, Caitlin's a small. Yes, undoubtedly. no, really, undoubtedly. We don't need Caitlin's size. <laughs> yeah, undoubtedly. Unless she wants a bigger size. She doesn't. For com- yeah, no. Yeah, I didn't think so. Like, I don't think she needs small. a bigger size for comfort. Anyways, yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah. But our team has grown by one, so now we are a wonderful five. Hopefully next week y'all will get to meet Caitlin ever so briefly. We'll she see. just she just wants to say hi. We'll see how she feeling. She listened to her first episode. Yeah, she's she finally like finally listening to this. She was like, "It's weird because you're professional." I'm like, "You didn't listen long enough." <laughs> also, which episode did she listen the to? The Centennial Crash. Oh, I was like, she didn't listen to our first one then. Oh god, no. <laughs> No. No, and then the other part of that, I'm like, "I work with you. I am professional." And she's like, "No, you're not." Oh, okay. Apparently I'm more professional here than I am at work. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Only with people you know at work. If you don't know them or you don't like them, you're very professional. Yes. It's also weird to me that people at my work that I never talk to or even know the names of, I'm so sorry, the person who I keep seeing in the kitchen who's like, your podcast is doing really well. I'm like, yep, thanks. I have no idea what your name is. (laughs) I feel that way about a lot of people at work. Um... (laughs) It scares me that people like that listen, and I'm like, I work with you adjacently somehow, some way. I have no idea what your name is, and you know me way more than I know you. Yep. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. We high-key appreciate it. Check out the newsletter if you'd like to answer the trivia questions, like you're hearing about these magical trivia questions, and you're like, what the heck? That is a thing. That is a thing. You have to, there's a sign up for it on the main page on our website. You can also sign up for Ducks. I... I'm going to be honest, I probably haven't fixed the, the form yet. Yeah. Mo, random. I, I know I haven't I mean, fixed by it time, as of now. By the time this comes out, you'll be out of school. That True. does not mean I'm going to remember. Nope. <laughs> I was giving you the benefit of the doubt. I like listen to, the, nice. I listen to them every Tuesday and I'm like, I got to do that. <laughs> and then I'll forget by the time I get to work. This is why so, I think you have fair. ADHD. I, I have the hyper-focused side of ADHD. Yes. I don't usually forget. The binge forget, queen. Yes. <laughs> I don't usually forget things very often. This is just a thing that I think of once a week, and so every <laughs> I forget it because it's once a week. Yo soy forgetful. Uh, yo soy very forgetful. Who are you again? <laughs> Uh-oh. Where am I? All right. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, 
please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by the lovely Paige. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.